You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. One and more on the Brave New Radio, and also with Dr. Esteban Marconi, a brave man. Thank you. <laughs> we are all brave here in New Jersey that's at this right. time in life, and that's the the time that we are in. It is a time of life, and it's very wonderful to be here and to be here with you today on this. Final yes, Dr. Esteban. And this is finals week. Finals week at William Patterson, and but not the yeah. week at William Patterson. Well, actually, the fun, sort of a final week for you at William Patterson in a way. Could be, sure. Uh, he's he's but retiring. I have a big school class, I know that. What'd you say? I have a big summer school class. Ah, okay. At the end of May. Okay. So, uh, yes, but we're winding down. Yes. That's with human resources and... Uh, Ask them why they haven't been in touch with me. All right. I'll give them a call right after that and say, please contact him. Yeah. Get him out. Get him out. I don't know. So, are so have, you heard of, have you heard from the fellow we're going to give thanks to in the last yes. week or so? Yes. We are uh, going to give thanks to uh, Professor Aaron Van Dyne. And I am uh, having a wonderful time teaching a class with him that actually we finished. So I have to speak with him today. But, you know, we should give thanks to Aaron and the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management because with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, Kiss, and St. Vincent, there's only one place for you to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you are ready. And don't forget, you're listening to Music Biz 101 anymore, by the way. I don't know if I ever said that. Go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for that newsletter that has been actually not coming out regularly because I have writer's block, but it will be back soon. And follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And of course, this podcast is something that you're loving on the iTunes or the SoundCloud. Dr. Esteban, we should give thanks to Christine. Oi. Hey, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped so many professionals at William Patterson and elsewhere, manage their investments and plan out for the retirement. When someone like you is thinking of building a bridge to your yes. financial future, think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine Dot. Boy. They at Forefront.com. Read the last oil off for savings. That's all we would ever ask of you people. There we go. <laughs> we are one of the best music business programs in the world, we have been told. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. Billboard magazine said it. Correct? And we've said it as well. Yeah. <laughs> ah, he's here. There we go. And we have a Welcome. guest today. Good morning. There is our guest. There yeah. we are. Welcome. The esteemed attorney. He is an attorney. He's a lawyer. He's counsel. He's our counselor. His name is Terrence. If he was a real estate guy, his sign would say Terrence Terry Camp. LLC. 
That's right, on his side. Great to have you, Terry. Thank you, guys. So listen, uh, in the spirit of um, most entertainment attorneys, what instrument do you play? What instrument do I play? <laughs> yeah, a lot of us are wannabes. You nailed me on that. Uh, I have a, uh, and have long had a uh, Takamini Acoustic Electric. So I'm a uh, hack rhythm guitar player. Ah. Competent, competent just enough to, to get on stage with the Stone Pony once in a while. Okay, great. Yeah, I was there once with, um, well, I'm a trumpet player, but I was there once with uh, La Bamba. Yeah. It's a big band, and uh, Bruce jumped on stage. That, that would have been, uh, let me guess, October 1984. It, it was, God, no, this was 86, 87, and it okay. was still indoors, of course. You know, the old stone pony with the two bars sure. and so on. So, so anyway, getting to uh, what you do, I think for the, uh, our listeners, uh, you possibly could explain the difference between the attorney that might be uh, representing somebody or with a band management and what the litigator is. Sure. Um, and, and I do do both, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an attorney. Uh, I've been a manager, uh, been involved in all sorts of aspects of, of the business over the years, but, uh, as a, as an attorney and I've been in the business of attorney wise, I guess about 30 years litigation, is your basic uh, dispute resolution right up to going to trial. Uh, so in any given context, um, you know, you're gonna deal with that. And then on the, the business side, everything from being a manager, which would be separate from being an attorney, uh, and in some states is quasi inappropriate, but in this day and age, it's, it's morphed quite a bit. And attorneys, as particularly entertainment attorneys, do a lot of crossover. Um, and there are a lot of hats played and, and, and roles filled uh, before and or as an alternative to having another team member. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and the, and the business side, independent of management, independent of litigation, of course, is the transactional contractual work in terms of the attorney world. Mm -hmm. Okay, and how did you like, get into the litigation side? Um, you know, I went to uh, uh, law school and got out and, and really always wanted to be an entertainment attorney, uh, but also knew that in order to do that, I'd probably have to dive into LA or New York and, and live there and work there. And just really wasn't up for that. So came out of law school with the entertainment bug in my background, but uh, clerked with a judge in Middlesex County, New Jersey for a year. Uh, met my future partners during that experience and took a position in 1989 uh, with a firm called Bud Larner in Short Hills, New Jersey. And at the time, the firm was one of the larger firms in the state, very strong in litigation. Uh, I think we peaked at about 140 attorneys. Um, and, uh, you know, the four, the, one of the, my real favorite things about my experience has been I never just had to be an environmental attorney or this kind of attorney or that kind of attorney. I've, I've been a pretty broad range litigation attorney over the years. I've uh, been recognized a few times as a uh, New Jersey super lawyer for general litigation. Uh, and beyond that, um, you know, the entertainment side ultimately uh, came along at, at its right speed. Good. Um, we always say, Dave and I in our classes, we always say, if you're going to, if, you, if, if you're successful, you're going to be sued. So is that true, basically? Oh, geez. I, I would hope not. You know, I've had a number of experiences over the years with people who are successful, uh, but thought that they were smart enough not to have their own attorney. And, and I think that's a real highlight uh, that anybody who's thinking along those lines in whatever context, whether it be, um, you know, commercial or estates or what have you, uh, it's really risky and sets you up and, and ultimately it costs a lot more to work out what happens when you didn't have your attorney um, yeah, yeah. than when you did. Yeah. But if you're a, uh, let's say, successful songwriter, they're going to come out of the woodwork, these guys that are going to claim copyright infringement? Uh, I think that's a little too simplistic, uh, you know, and it's certainly a hot area. You know, there's been lots of... Uh, infringement and, and litigation and, and Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera, in recent years. So definitely a hot issue, but um, 
No, I mean, if you're a songwriter, again, if you've got an attorney and you're a songwriter, your attorney is going to be looking over your shoulder. He or she is going to hear what you're doing. He's going to be aware of what's out there and make sure that you're not creating a situation where you're quote unquote ripping somebody else off. Mm-hmm. What about, if, what about yeah. you, going off on that? Yeah, just uh, split sheets. So let's say you're representing uh, a songwriter and they wrote a song with three other people. They have split sheets where they all agreed to X percentage of this. The song comes out, it's a huge hit. Have you seen some people who had signed saying, I get 6% of this song, all of a sudden saying, wait, 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 I get 12 or 18%. This is, this is I signed that under duress or something. Are you, have you seen stuff like that? Well, of course. I mean, you know, duress and <clears throat> I didn't have a lawyer is a good one. You know, you know, I signed this agreement. There's nothing on there that says I should have had a lawyer. There's nothing on there that said you're telling me I should have a lawyer. <clears throat> so that's actually um, probably a better out than duress. Not, not to try and create litigation for anybody out there, but. Um, what, well, what if, what if it came, it was just a gentleman's thing where I'm the, there, there are three of us right now on this call. So I'm a songwriter and I just give it to you. I don't have a lawyer either. And the three of us all signed this agreement is, so none of us have a lawyer. So when you sue me, can my lawyer say, well, we didn't have a lawyer either. We, we all take responsibility for our actions. Um, is sure, Absolutely. And ultimately, what you wind up in is is probably short of litigation. You wind up in dispute resolution, um, which is going to be mediation or arbitration if you have to and you can't work it out. Um, you know, and I, I like to take a pretty creative approach to, to resolving things. Years ago, I used to represent Burns Security when Burns was the Meadowlands contractor up at the Meadowlands. Uh, and in any given case, the defendants were Burns Security, the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority, the state police and John Shares Metropolitan Entertainment. So we had all the cases arising out of the Meadowlands. The the Grateful Dead Adam Katz death case was one of them, 1989. Um, and along the way, at one point, there was one case we just couldn't settle. Um, judge wasn't successful, so I called all the attorneys up. I said, "Look, come to my office. We're going to sit around. No mediator, no judge, no nothing. Let's try and get this thing resolved." And it took about four hours. But with plaintiff's attorney there, we resolved it and, and just settled the case. So sometimes you can do that. Um, and that's always an efficient uh, goal that I try and pursue if I can. Mm-hmm. So when you say creative, the creative part was just getting everybody in the room together without mom and dad watching basically and hashing it out. Or within the agreement, you guys came up with some creative stuff. Yeah, and I've done it in recent years as well um, in, a, in a pretty complex real estate litigation dispute. Um, and honestly, not a lot of attorneys do that when you have multi-parties. You tend to resort to, oh, well, we have to get a mediator. Let's go to arbitration or let's sit down with the judge. But uh, once in a while, you can achieve a lot just by sitting around as a bunch of uh, professionals and compare notes and make a presentation and tell me why I don't win kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, again, for our listeners in the layman. Many times throughout the years, we've read a billboard where uh, when an artist is, maybe doesn't set it exactly, when an artist is not happy with a recording contract and they declare bankruptcy. Why do they declare bankruptcy at that uh, specific time? Hmm. Why do they declare bankruptcy? Uh, uh, sometimes we read that, uh, well, we've heard that uh, many times that means then they don't have to abide by all the clauses in the contract if they've declared bankruptcy, uh, et cetera. Well, theoretically, that's true. Um, as long as you're not declaring bankruptcy on a fraudulent basis, um, you know, certainly bankruptcy protects you from a lot of things. Um, I have honestly have not seen that in, in too many I haven't seen that at all actually <laughs> so that, that's why you threw me a little I'm, I'm bit trying to remember remember I think Tony Braxton did that if I remember correctly do you remember it all Dave no, I'm trying to remember. I remember 50 cent declared bankruptcy a few years ago right after he lost the case where he was accused of sexual harassment I think and he owed a woman millions of dollars so right after he lost i believe he declared bankruptcy so that he basically to shield himself from having to pay her oh sure yeah that that's common if you get a big judgment against you and you're just not gonna be able to pay it unfortunately bankruptcy is one way to go not a great way to go so so by the way i just did want to say uh your program and, and i'm aware of it and familiar with it uh really great 
Um, how many years have you been doing this? Well, they started at uh, William Patterson about 1982, and then I came in 84. Wow. Uh, prior to that, I was at Syracuse University. I started the program up there, and I was there the for communication a school. Uh, yeah, we started in the music school, and then our bandier gave a bunch of money, and he wanted it to be a new house, and that was a political so on. He was a trustee, et cetera. But yeah, hmm. now it's... Now they have two programs, actually. They do have a program in visual performing arts and one in, in Newhouse. And I, and I take oh, it a significant part of your population of listeners are actually students? Yes. Yes. Good. Uh, and normally, if school was in session, we would ask them to be tweeting for every uh, class so that gotcha. they would tweet in so we would have questions to ask from them. Um, and that, since I'm not batting so well, another question I have is that um, we find many times that we read the uh, artist is suing their manager for misappropriation of funds. You what know, I've, I've, actually, I've actually lectured on agents and managers, law litigation, regulation, and negotiation. In my capacity as a board member of the Entertainment Arts and Sports Law section of the bar. Mm -hmm. um, Management contracts, another great example of why a, an artist always wants to have an attorney involved. Um, obviously, a manager is one of the earliest people who are going to come to you. Uh, and the, the chances, starting all the way back in the 50s and 60s, of managers signing you and quote-unquote overreaching uh, and really taking advantage of you are high. Um, that management agreement should have that clause we talked about in terms of um, you know, you're advised to get an attorney, you know, if you don't get an attorney, that's on you basically. Um, so yeah, misappropriation is a situation where you've got a management agreement, uh, that doesn't cover as much as it should, uh, not the least of which are audit rights so that you can go ahead and have access to the manager's books and keep an eye on them. Um, but you know, within the past week, I was actually working up a management agreement and I got it. Uh, from a guy who had a very fine attorney, and he created a very fine one-sided attorney on the management side. Um, and the manager, to my artist, basically said, you know, uh, you know, what are you negotiating about? You know, why, why, why? I was like, well, the answer is your attorney created a, a ridiculous contract. And unfortunately, there's a lot of red lining in the track changes you're going to have to deal with, but that's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. um, so misappropriation would be a manager who gets monies in and doesn't appropriately uh, provide them to the artist consistent with terms of the contract, which hopefully are, are balanced as opposed to one-sided for the management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we teach our students, uh, we teach our students that um, the business manager should be holding an artist's account and all money should go to the business manager as a CPA first and then funneled out to the appropriate people. Right, and, and there's, there's a level below which that may not be practical when you're starting out very young and getting in. Um, but yeah, after a certain point, 100% business manager is an outstanding part of the team for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, let me uh, ask you, because you, you do both the contracts law and also you do litigation on the entertainment side, is, is it common that uh, an artist will have somebody who's doing both for them? Or is it usually lots of times they have their contracts person, if litigation is needed, the contracts person recommends somebody else to them? I don't know that it's more common or not. Um, I think in the entertainment world, uh, I suppose probably you're right. More than 50% of the time, you may actually have to go to an outside entertainment litigator. Um, but uh, Fortunately, that's not the case with respect to my practice. Mm -hmm. And in terms of litigation, what are a, bu a bunch of the different types of, I don't know what the word would be, litigation things that matters. you- Matters. Yeah, ma hey, there we go, matters, there we go. What, what are the types of matters that, that you see there? Uh, you know, it comes up in all sorts of contexts. I represented an entertainment production company uh, that was dealing with a director who was friendly with a band called the Black Keys. Of course, we know the Black Keys. So the uh, director becomes a member of the LLC that is the entertainment production company. 
and cuts a deal. And I can talk about all all this because it was disclosed in a federal filing that I did. Um, cuts a deal by which, if there's a profit, he'll take X percent of the profit and the little expenses up front, which he got. So the Black Keys get the uh, agreement, or excuse me, get the, the footage, and they're just not thrilled with it, despite their friendship with the director. Uh, the director disappears and takes off with it. Um, I have to find him, I have to chase him down, I have to get his attorney, I have to settle with him, which we did. We got the footage back to my client, the entertainment production company. Now we say, okay, we're gonna go ahead and exploit, sell this documentary for a fair amount of money and make our money back that my client put into it. So the Black Keys say, oh, wait, we'll buy it from you. Great. So then they say, but we need that director who you're now an enemy with to sign off on everything. <laughs> that was a nightmare, went on for a long time, and ultimately the director took the position that if you're gonna get X amount of money, uh, I'm gonna demand half of the X that you're getting in order to sign off on this thing, which was completely impractical and would have been a great loss for my client. So we sued the director in federal court, uh, and long story short, like anything, you know, we got with a, a judge who was pretty effective at getting things resolved. Uh, it took a long time, but it got resolved. Um, other contexts, I've represented um, one of the sons of Miles Davis uh, with my fun friend um, Lloyd Jassen in New York, fine copyright attorney and author, uh, in connection with some complex publishing royalty issues involving the Miles Davis estate. Uh, that was occurring right around the time of the uh, Miles Davis movie uh, starring uh, Don Cheadle. Right. Um, and, you know, it goes on and on. It's It's been a, uh, a fun ride. I'm trying to think of what other highlights. Got to look at my notes. But, um, you know, and whatever it is. And, and sometimes it can be real emergent where you got to go into court and, and get an injunction and do all sorts of dramatic things. That's certainly an area in my practice as well. It hasn't really come up in the entertainment context. Um, and then independent of actual, you know, litigation and disputes, again, sometimes that super strong letter where, uh, you know, the attorney has done a good job getting all the facts together, applying the law to it, presenting it to the other side and saying sort of like Robert Conrad, make an old reference to the 70s where he had the commercial with the battery on the shoulder and says here it is knock it off tell me why I don't win uh, sometimes you can get things resolved that way as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a, um, a real experience I was just thinking of we had uh, a student in the 90s the early 90s and uh, she was in our personal management class and one of the requirements in that class is they go out and find a group and come up with a set of objectives for the semester that they're going to achieve and they ba basically manage the group. So uh, this woman in the class found a group that was, um, had a, a reasonable hit and uh, they were signed with Russell Simmons and they wanted to do another record. And she said Russell Simmons was stopping them from doing the record if they didn't uh, let him manage them. I don't know if there was a contract or what, but he wanted to be their manager too. So I said to her, "Not you know, I said, that's illegal. He can't do that. So she told the, the, guy, the leader of the band, the rappers, told the leader of the band, the band went back and told Russell Simmons this. The next thing that happened within about 24 hours, the girl in her dorm room, pre-cell phone, gets a call from Russell Simmons and says, who told you this, that? So she said, well, my teacher told me that and so on. Long story short, they never recorded again. With yeah. record. And they had a yeah, hit. The, the hit was called, um, I think it was called Pump Up the Bass. If you remember that in the in the Sure, of course. Days. Pump Up the Bass. Yeah, it was a decent hit. You know, there, there anyway, certainly... was, was that true? He's not, I mean, is it? illegal without any paperwork to not somebody allow somebody to record when you're they're signed to your label if you if you can't manage them as well probably not <laughs> there are a lot of bullies in the record industry for sure um, <clears throat> you know another interesting litigation story in history and i'm sure you'll enjoy the the aspects of it um as a young associate at bud larner one day, one of my insurance attorneys came to me, a partner, 
and said, uh, you know, I want you to get involved in this. He knew my proclivities towards entertainment. Turns out when you have a financial interest in somebody's life, you can take a life insurance policy on them without them necessarily knowing. Mm -hmm. So John Scher was the booking agent for the Grateful Dead east of the Rockies, and Bill Graham was the Grateful Dead booking agent west of the Rockies. Right. Um, and in 1991, John Scher went to a company in Germany called Gerling Concern and said, okay, I have a financial interest in this fellow Jerry Garcia's life, and I'd like to take a $3 million life insurance policy. Gerling Concern says, okay, we signed you. He renewed it in 90, I guess he took it in 92, renewed it in 93. Garcia passes away, I guess, around 95. And sometime around 95, 96, we get retained to look at the state of knowledge of Jerry Garcia's state of health at the time of the application and the renewal. Mm. I was the guy who did the stateside investigation for this London lawsuit. Uh, I was on the phone with the heads of Billboard, Polestar, um, Mikhail Gilmore at Rolling Stone, Anthony DeCurtis at Rolling Stone, mm. just absorbing it all. But the one guy that I needed to get was a gentleman named Robert Higgins, because Higgins had been the author on Jerry Garcia's Dark Star, auto, Dark Star autobiography. Mm. I called William Morris, and William Morris says, look, we understand why you want to speak to him. Uh, we'll let him know, but we can't give you his personal information. If he calls you, he calls you. He didn't call me. Um, and, and coincidentally, Higgins was also the author of uh, Bill Graham Presents, Bill Graham's autobiography. Mm -hmm. So one day, long before the cell phones in our modern age, I called Los Angeles area information with the trial looming. And I said, Robert Higgins, please. And they said, we have four. I said, give me all four. So each one I called and I told him the story almost as I'm telling you. And the third one takes a deep breath. And he says, I worked with Bill Graham and his people for years. They would never think of doing anything like this. I find this to be morally reprehensible. And of course I'll work with you. Mm. We had our star witness, case went to trial, no $3 million. Mm. Uh, wow. Little known. It was ultimately reported vaguely in Rolling Stone when it happened, uh, ultimately. But, and then about uh, the last, uh, last fall, uh, Bill Graham, you know, they've got a touring exhibit. So we went into the city uh, and checked that out. Um, that was pretty neat. And, and you know, one, one of the people that I've worked with and been very close with for many years is a singer-songwriter named John Eddy. Well, in 1986, on June 15th, Amnesty International had one of its biggest concerts. The police had reunited. You two were on the bill. Uh, and as a uh, show at Giant Stadium, they had John Eddy, local CBS Columbia Records artist, open the show. Well, this Bill Graham Presents exhibit, they had the, uh, the, uh, the schedule from that show framed up. And there was John Eddy's name. And, and the funny story about that, broadcast live on MTV, it was Father's Day, June 15, 1986. And Elliot Gould was the host. Bill Graham introduced the show, but Elliot Gould was behind in the timing and sequencing of the introduction. So you hear Bill Gra uh, Elliot Gould going on and on about Amnesty International and you know, all around the world. And then he goes, now to the stage in Bill Graham. But as he was saying that, underneath it, I heard Bill Graham going, New Jersey, please welcome New Jersey's own John Eddy. Never made it on air to anybody who's paying an ounce of attention. <laughs> so I was pretty pissed off at Elliot Gould and MTV for that. Yeah, right. All right. Can I, can I go back to that John Share thing? Yeah. So you said uh, he took out a life insurance policy on Jerry Garcia and it was legal to do so. So just because um, the author felt it was morally reprehensible, what was, what was it that was the morally reprehensible part that John Shear realized that uh, Jerry Garcia was on his last legs or what was, I mean, besides. No, Robert Higgins, I, I just think just didn't like the whole concept of, of life insurance in that context where you can have a secret life insurance policy just because you have an interest in somebody's life without having them know and without having them submit to a medical examination. Right. And he thought his, his view was Bill Graham would never do anything like that. Uh, so in this context, you know, the share chose to do that. 
And then obviously what came out and what the jury found in London was that the state of knowledge of Jerry Garcia's state of health was such that this never should have been represented, that he was actually in a good state of health at the time of the application and then the renewal. Okay, that's, so that's what it was. It was so the, the, I guess the last, going back to 91, 92, the last three, four, or five years of his life, he wasn't uh, all there, I guess. Absolutely not. There's no way okay. you could have, you know, factually, accurately, without misrepresenting, uh, so ultimately becomes a fraud issue, and it, it winds up costing you. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Now, jump ahead, since clearly if anybody associated with John is listening to this, and I've made an enemy of him yet again, um, <laughs> as... <laughs> Asbury Park uh, had a space called Where Music Lives on Cookman Avenue uh, that had a lot of Asbury history, and I'm, I'm pretty involved in the Asbury music scene. So I guess about three, four years ago, they had a, a private reception uh, for John Sheriff, 70 uninvited guests, and I was one of them. Uh, so I had the opportunity to attend, enjoy, and at the end of the night, put my arm around John and have a nice photograph with him. And, um, and I mentioned to him that, you know, you know, oh, we used to represent Burn Security at the Meadowlands, I didn't go so far, so far as to say, oh, and I cost you $3 million. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, we had John here, too, uh, several years ago, right? And then on the radio once as well. Yeah, we've had him on our show before. And uh, Marconi and I were actually texting about him just two days ago because he was yeah. in the paper, the Star Ledger or something, talking about uh, concert yeah, the, for business and come back and how it's going to come well, back. I, I appreciate a lot of what he did. The Capitol Theater was epic. I, I saw Eddie Murphy and the Bus Boys play at the Capitol Theater. Uh, I tragically missed some of the legendary shows like The Who and Bruce Springsteen in 1978. Yeah. But, uh, you know, amazing, amazing. And it's so great that they have the footage from that, um, you know, those days. Mark, yeah. did, you, did you play with Springsteen at the Capitol Theater? No, just when he jumped on stage at... Um, at the Pony? I thought there was a play. Who did you? But I played the Capitol Theater with um, uh, live radio. In, okay. in, I think it was um, Marshall Crenshaw and, um, you know, and the E Street guys and all, that, that whole angle. Yeah. So there one, I think I only played there once, actually. Yeah. Uh, I played both Fillmore's when I was on Epic Records in the early uh, 70s. Wow, that's fantastic. So I played uh, both the Fillmore East and Fillmore West, actually. Mar Marshall Crenshaw was on a, a show that I produced in 1994, October 20th. Uh, summer of 1994, the, the Stone Pony at the time was owned by a guy named Steve Nasser. He had taken it over from the original owners, Butch and Jack. <clears throat> and Nasser's vision was sort of create, to create a modern venue doing nothing but modern acts. And a lot of the traditional acts went by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So with that void, um, John Eddy came up with the idea, uh, along with the team of uh, Bob Benjamin and Henry Vaccaro and, and I, uh, to create a concert series where we were catering to the singer-songwriters. So in 94, 95, Mars American Style um, started, and ultimately uh, Bruce came down to two of our nights. One of them was October 20th, 1994, at the Playpen, because we'd gotten kicked out of Mars uh, when the, the owner's mother took over for reasons that I can't get into. <laughs> but uh, at the playpen on October 20th, 1994, it was an acoustic night of Marshall Crenshaw, Elliot Murphy, Greg Kinn, uh, and then John Eddie's band to close the night. Um, Bruce came down, and at some point, John says, are you going to get up and play? He goes, no, I'll wait, you know, wait for later for the band. So they all got up and, and did an epic uh, lineup of um, Hey Tonight, Bang a Gong, Get It On, uh, Gloria, and uh, Suspicious Minds. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, uh, we were backstage, and I took a nice photo of, of the lineup of them all in a row. And, um, and, and uh, legendary DJ from Philadelphia, Ed Shockey, who was a friend of ours and was there. <clears throat> and the backstage of the playpen was so tight that I could not fit Ed in. I said, Ed, I can't go back any farther. He's leaning in. So I get the, the thing in, the, in those days, you know, you're analog and you have the negatives. So with the, the way the photoshops printed in those days, they really were never covering the entirety of the negative. So when the negative came in, I looked at it and I saw about two thirds of Ed's head and I was able to cut out Marshall a little bit, put Ed in and send that to him and he really appreciated it. <laughs> Early Photoshop. Yes. <laughs> now, in some of your material that you sent to us in advance, you mentioned how you've litigated against AEG. Uh, can you explain oh, that yeah. it included basically net profits 
versus approved expenses. Can you, can you explain those terms? Because so, a lot of people probably don't get the whole net profit expenses and all that and kind of get into that. Sure. Um, this relates to uh, a sequence of events that was kind of interesting. 1985, excuse me, 1995, a gentleman reached out to me at my desk in Short Hills and said, uh, I represent this guy over at Liberty State Park. He wants to do uh, you know, concerts over there. And this 4th of July, he's doing a show and somebody recommended John Eddy for Americana Rock and Roll, book John Eddy. Well, it became clear that the promoter, a guy named Ken Tesler, and had a group called uh, Liberty Event, really wanted to do a major, major concert festival at Liberty State Park. So over the next year, John and I sort of consulted him, and in 1996, we did Liberty Jam, June 25th, 1996, um, and really looked at all sorts of options. You know, an independent promoter trying to line up a concert like that, the agents look at you and they say, well, who are you really? And you know, who's got the money? Even though I was an attorney, um, they wanted to know, you know, where's the money? Cause their reputations are on the line. If they wind up screwing an artist, then it's a problem. So we didn't get the, the great, uh, you know, stellar lineup that we went for, but we got a, a good lineup of um, Los Lobos, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, the Smithereens, John Eddy, um, Patti Smith. It was just an eclectic lineup. Unfortunately, Outdoor event poured like crazy in the week leading up to and the night before, mud everywhere. Thing was not a financial success. But to Ken's credit, the next year he sucked it up, decided to be less independent, and went around, got to know the Golden Boys people, uh, the Coachella people, AEG, and partnered in with them in 2008 and 9 for the All Points West Music and Arts Festival at Liberty State Park, also known as the East Coast Coachella. Um, First year was Radiohead, two nights, Jack Johnson, the third. So we're talking Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three bands, three stages, all sorts of acts on there. And then the second year, um, it's going to be the Beastie Boys, Tool, and Coldplay as the three-night headliners. Uh, Adam Yao, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer not long before the show. <clears throat> His management company had two others that were good options. One was the Foo Fighters, uh, and one was Jay-Z. And Jay-Z actually stepped up, and we had Jay-Z open the show. Uh, there's a good video online, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, a countdown. <clears throat> and he comes on and actually did uh, in tribute the Beastie Boys, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, to open the show. So that was quite a highlight and very exciting. Unfortunately, uh, Ken and Liberty event were, were tainted and haunted by rain situations. Um, that despite Ken's knowledge of this, this, uh, this ritual whereby you take a, a knife through an onion and you go to the four corners of the property and theoretically that protects you from all natural disasters, et cetera. Well, it didn't because it rained so bad the Saturday that by the Sunday with Coldplay, they had to bulldoze mud across the field so people almost weren't drowning in mud walking into the field. Ah. Uh. Again, a financial disaster, and when you have financial disasters, naturally, it leads to litigation. <clears throat> so, after the 2008-2009 experience, AEG and uh, Liberty Event were in um, AAA, American Arbitration Association Arbitration. And yeah, the, the two issues boil down to net profits and approved expenses. Uh, so sometimes even with lawyers, um, you wind up in litigation. And you know, net profits is a, a uh, really just a huge issue in the entertainment industry for decades and decades, um, whether it be the film, music, television. Um, and net profits are pretty much the way, particularly in film, uh, it's gotten a little better because people are so tuned into it now that the big company, uh, the, the film studio, will get over on you because they'll say, okay, well, we're going to pay you a little bit but oh, you're gonna you know, get a nice percentage on net profits. And ultimately, uh, the net profits definition is maybe a page long with every possible contingency you can think of such that when they do the accounting and they look at the expenses, um, there is never a net profit, even though technically there really was a net profit. Um, and then back to the approved expenses, you know, you've got the situation where, um, you know, Ken was supposed to have approved expenses that were actually not uh, reviewed by him or offered to be reviewed by him. So 
again, it was a battle and, and like anything, ultimately it comes to an end and gets resolved. Um, and this one actually did resolve by settlement rather than a, uh, a ruling. That's about as much as I can say about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Are most cases that you work with when it comes to litigation settled before they go to court? Yeah, I think the statistic, it varies, but it's somewhere in the range of 5% uh, of all cases ever go to trial. Um, now, settled before court, that's a different situation because, you know, you, you've got different levels of litigation. Litigation really starts with dispute resolution. It can be resolved as simply as a dispute resolved by letter uh, or a mediation, which would be non-binding, where you're going to have an independent mediator sit compare notes, bring the sides together, show each side why they might win, show them why they might lose, show them why it would be much better to get this resolved now. Uh, if that fails, then you can go to arbitration, which typically is binding. You can have one arbitrator, you can have three arbitrators. Um, you can do it through a formal body like the American Arbitration Association, uh, or just um, engage a bunch of retired judges. Uh, and then there's litigation and, and litigation all the way is, you know, filing the lawsuit. Um, so I'd say, you know, a fair amount of the time, you definitely have to file that lawsuit. But in terms of actually, quote unquote, going to trial, that's a different story. But between the filing of the lawsuit and trial, there's a long run of experience, you know, motion practice, and discovery and depositions and rulings by the judge and sometimes interim appeals, uh, sometimes applications for injunctions, all sorts of excitement along those lines. All in all, is in terms of a career, I know some of your people here are students, um, you know, being a lawyer is a pretty interesting experience. And, and particularly when you can balance it out, you know, when you have other interests and you, and you get involved in things. Um, I've actually got an entertainment production company. I was doing so many um, promoting of concerts and getting involved in all sorts of things, things over the years that people kept saying, why don't you start a business? Uh, so I have a company called Big Road um, with my partner, Jesse Warren, down in Monmouth County. And over the years, we've produced a number of, of charity concerts. Um, you know, the, the 40th anniversary of Born to Run a few years ago, we got Max Weinberg from the East Street Band to come down, um, made great money uh, for a uh, <clears throat> post-rehab uh, drug, drug uh, rehabilitation group. Um, and uh, since, since done, I guess, eight annual Big Man's Birthday Bashes, um, I, I worked with Clarence Clements' son, Nick Clements, uh, when Clarence passed away, had a lot of dealings with the estate. And from uh, he passed away 2011 on, we've done a number of charity concerts over the years for charities, not the least of which is the Monmouth County SPCA. Um, shout out to Ross Citra, who's up for um, Freeholder right now. <laughs> there we go. Um, with COVID right now, I've listened to some various podcasts where promoters and venue owners and people have been on, and there's been discussion that, actually I wrote this down because I want to I make sure I get this, this right. Okay. Um, that once the country starts to open up and there's still no vaccine and venues decide to start allowing concerts and mass gathering events. So the, my question is, if a consumer is gonna, going to attend a show, and they get the virus. I've heard people in the industry state that the venues may be liable for this. <clears throat> if the concert goer used free will to attend the show in the first place and has access to understanding all of the risks inherent in actually attending the show. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, David, you liberal guy. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you can assume the risk, but a premises owner, uh, particularly in New Jersey, there's some good case law on premises liability. Uh, is up to a, a negligent standard, knew or should have known. And there are very serious risks putting a, a number of people in that, in that uh, space, uh, knowing there's no vaccine. The, the body of, of authority and evidence and knowledge and the government and, and everything, um, whether it be now, whether it be a few months from now, whether it be five or six months from now, um, I hate to say this, but the, the risk that a premises owner would be sued and that suit was successful uh, and then you've got either a personal injury matter where you just are in the hospital and suffer you know pain and suffering or whether god forbid you pass away and you have a wrongful death lawsuit um, it's a concern and, it, and, it, and then it gets into multiple levels because now over and above the premises owner getting sued you have to talk about the insurance company 
because at the end of the day, the liability is very likely going to fall on the insurance company. So it, it goes on and on. It's a complex thing. And I don't know how it's all going to work out. And this thought of having a capacity of, you know, maybe 25% or even 50% capacity in the context of a concert sort of ruins the vibe, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And those force majeure, is that going to, does that play a role anywhere in this? Or um, it, well, it does. It, the force majeure plays a role, I think, in terms of canceled events, um, you know, whether it be concerts or weddings. And, right. You know, I'm sure a number of people tried to enforce that as, you know, this is an act of God. Pandemic is one of the things typically listed under force majeure. Um, sure. In terms of uh, a planned event that goes forward, you know, notwithstanding this, I don't think force majeure really comes into play. Wow. Okay, yes, Dave? Yeah, um, I, I just find this interesting. So I go to a show. And, oh, 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 well, first of all, you mentioned, let me go back, uh, the 25% capacity, whatever that is. I can't imagine most of these venues are going to be able to survive anyway with 25% capacity because they weren't built for that because they're making their money from selling beer <clears throat> or concessions. Raise, or raise, the, raise the same question as to restaurants too. Yeah. yeah. It's nuts. So we could then, could we see, so forget about the future. Let's, let's look back just eight weeks to, to February and you see how these hotspots were built where in a restaurant, I, I sat with the two of you at a table and there are three of us at this table both of you got it because I was a carrier. And then around me, let's say 15 other people got it because of the ventilation system and the way that uh, the virus was pushed around the air. Would the restaurant be liable for that? Are all these churches gonna be liable for how people got it even though they at the time didn't even know it existed? There's gonna be a point there's going to be a break point and and the way this country works in terms of trials and litigation it's going to vary by by judge um, because the judges are the ones who ultimately make the rulings and the calls and the break point is going to be when was it such that you knew or should have known and certainly by march you might think that's the case all the way back in january february maybe not it's going to be a, a judgment call by judges excuse me one second they actually are going to uh, try this thing in arkansas where they have taken this temple, this temple concert, I think is gonna happen Friday, if I'm not mistaken. And they have roped off where you can sit. And you know, they're more than six feet apart, and of course, but they've bunched together, which I didn't care for, like six or seven in each row that they're gonna use. And yeah. that was what, for people buying six tickets together, I didn't understand that part. But they said the same basic thing that we're all saying here. Uh, and uh, they're trying to, as you know, of course, more than me, they're trying to do this separation of church and state and with these um, religious halls and so on. But Dave brings up the, the great point, of course, and that is that the, uh, they don't have separate ventilation systems and so on. So right. the things we say, of course, is stay out of buildings now you know, and then wear your mask and so on. So they're all going to be wearing masks. And I guess what, uh, what is occurring is that each state governor is going to have a set or has a set of criteria before you can open. And they have to meet that criteria. Now, if right. they meet all that criteria, then who, who would get sued? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, too. Um, I, I can give you a related example. Um, I complied with OSHA with respect to this exposure to a toxic, toxic substance at the workplace. Uh, therefore, I win. Well, it doesn't work that way. At the end of the day, um, <clears throat> unless there's a law that says if you comply with this law, you won't get sued, uh, then in New Jersey at least, and, and look, it may vary by state, but in New Jersey, uh, the issue of compliance with a regulation or a given law becomes a factor for a jury to consider in terms of whether or not the legal standard was violated. Mm. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, talk, talking about this, the, the, uh, the outdoor concert situation, um, you know, Garden State Art, Art Center, one thing, you're sitting on top of each other, we understand that. I call it the Garden State Art Center, showing my age, known to most today as the Pants right. and Bank Art Center. 
Um, but uh, then you think of a place perhaps like the Stone Pony, and they have that outdoor facility, which fits somewhere in the range of like three or 4,000 people packed. Um, but you could comfortably do a concert and enforce some level of social distancing in that kind of a setting. Mm -hmm. But then you have to worry about the whole back line of the band and, and the production crew and not only the artist, but the protection of the, um, you know, the performers as well. Well, at some point, as a number of politicians have said, we all have to go back to work. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, the artists, unfortunately, you know, a lot of them uh, are sitting at home really itching to get out. And, you know, historically looking at the music business in terms of, of Napster, pretty much beginning the, the, the end in terms of the value of what you can make on a record. Uh, and ultimately today, yes, artists are doing a little bit better in terms of royalties, but concert revenues um, were huge. For artists right so this is very very tough i think that uh if this disease was visible in other words if you saw uh, a red color on somebody that they have it or something but but these people itching to get out and i am too of course everybody is but this idea because i think because it's invisible and you can't see it and you've done this protection of wearing a mask then we can do it Right, do it, but the numbers are were flattened the curve, of course, and all of that. But um, new cases haven't been uh, substantially until we get this antibody test and the vaccine. I think it's still a crapshoot. Right, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> so, what part of uh, being an entertainment attorney do you like the best? You know, I like dealing with the artists. Um, I, I find that artists, um, they need someone who has a sense of the business, someone who has a sense as to what they're about, what they may know, what they don't know, what they can relate to, what they can't relate to. Uh, I like the challenge of dealing with different types of artists. You know, I've had some experience in the hip hop world. Um, I actually represented Havoc from Mob Deep, 90s legends, and then actually just celebrating the 25th anniversary with a re-release now of, of uh, the Shook Ones. But, you know, um, Prodigy passed away in 2017. So there were a lot of things to work out, not the least of which were booked gigs, and there was a management situation. Um, at some point during that odyssey, I was actually across the table from a guy named Londell McMillan. Londell is one of the principals at Source Magazine. Um, he's also represented the estates of Michael Jackson and Prince, uh, in addition to Prodigy, uh, but did so in such a fashion that when Jay-Z put out 444, he actually shouted out Londell by name as having not done such a great job with the estates. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, you know, whether it be country, rock and roll, um, hip hop, uh, I, I like just personalities and, and just in general, you know, I, I can't say enough about law as a career and, and when you've got some other interests to support it. Um, and even independent of entertainment, I'm, I'm a pretty passionate photographer. Um, your student, students might be interested to know that in looking at a career out of high school, uh, I was seriously thinking I wanted to be a photojournalist. Mm -hmm. And on December 9, 1980, took a ride up to Rochester Institute of Technology with a pending application. Uh, and they happily told me that I was admitted. And I thought I was set for life. But when the paperwork came two months later, they said, oh, you know, the program to which you've admitted photography, which was the only reason I wanted to go to RIT, is full at this time. Here are your options. And one was waitlist. So I went with waitlist, wound up at Drew University, liberal arts, and wound up ultimately in college. But, you know, it's been a, a fun career path. And uh, at, at my office, uh, somewhere in a, in a mid-level associate level, I, I totally did my office in photos of Springsteen that I've taken and all sorts of rock and roll and wasn't sure how the partners would go for it, but they thought it was nice and approved of it. And I've done a few photo shows. So it's definitely a good thing in your career, whatever you're in, uh, to have, have multiple levels of interest. Right. We had Mark, uh, oh, Mark, yeah. Mark Weiss. Yes, yes. Mark Weiss. Yes. yes. Friend of mine. Oh, and Mark's got a fascinating career and has known Ozzy Osbourne for years and, uh, he, did, he did some work with John Eddie and us over, over the years. In fact, he was involved in a, a video shoot we did at the bottom line in 1998. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I know him very well. Great guy and very talented. Lots of history there. Uh, yeah.
Yeah. My, la uh, my last question, because we're actually hitting up the time wall, is one thing that you mentioned that you do is music festival law. Can you explain what music festival law is? Because I had never heard of that before. Sure. Um, you know, it, it depends. You can look at it from the litigation side, which we've talked about at length today. Uh, music festival law basically involves the, the, uh, the production of a music festival. Um, and that's an extensive uh, thing, not the least of which when you do it at a place like Liberty State Park, you know, there you're dealing with uh, environmentalists and park is owned by a nonprofit group uh, founded, founded by Sam Pesson many years ago and his son today. And, you know, the, the, this bush has to not be touched and stay away from this area. And then you're dealing with the, um, the sorry about the phone, that should be done. The, um, you know, the state police and security. Um, so producing a concert is, is not for the uh, timid. Um, there's a lot of legal involved and ultimately, obviously the band contracts themselves are, are complicated and you're dealing with multiple bands and, and lots of personalities from agents and, and managers for each. So, um, you know, it's a complicated experience and, and having been through it a few times, um, it's, uh, it's enjoyable and challenging and hopefully it doesn't result in dispute resolution down the line, but sometimes it goes that way too. Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Dr. Stabon, any final words for our good friend, Terry Camp? No, it's been very interesting. I always, when I've had, um, especially in the early days, I had attorneys come and speak to classes and we'd be walking across campus and they would say, boy, if I had to do it again, I would be a professor. And I would say, yeah, if I had to do it again, I would be an attorney. Grass <laughs> <laughs> is always greener. Guys, I enjoyed it. And, and again, I'm really impressed with your show and they'll definitely promote it around for you and keep an eye on what you're doing. And, uh, congratulations great. to you, too. Thanks, Terry. Right. Bye. Good luck. Take Stay care. Safe. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So uh, thank you, Terry. That was very cool. Uh, Dr. Stavon Marconi, thank you very much for appearing on Music Biz 101 More. It's very great. And you, too, Professor David Kirkfield. That is great. So thank you to Terry Camp. Thank you. We never said yes. one word about Ashley Veltner, who had nothing to do with this show, but she had everything to do with the program over the last few years. You get her continued, yes. Yes. So thank you to Ashley and the spirit of Ashley Veltner. She's alive. It's just that she's not here with us today. So she handed in an assignment yesterday. So see that proves it. So we want to thank our listeners and thanks to Terry Camp and thanks to the state of New Jersey and Governor Murphy. So for all of you, we love you. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello, which would be, would be ridiculous, basically, to say that. So at the end of every show, do you know what we say, Dr. Stavon Marconi? Um. Yes. Oh, okay then. So no. I'm going to say adios. Situation, you're losing hope, I'm losing patience.